how good it has been to sing to the Lord this morning for our hearts. Well, if you're in love this morning, then you know, you know two things intuitively. If you're in love this morning, you know that, that um, one of the most important things is to spend time with that loved one. And the second most important thing is that when you're spending time with that loved one, you are attentive, you are listening, and you are observant. I'm seeing all the wives look at their husbands right now. I can just see that. And it is no different when we look at being the best student of the Word that you can be, the best teacher or preacher of the Word. It requires that you spend time in the Word, and it requires that you muster all the powers of observation and attentiveness that you can have in order to hear and to see what God is saying. And I'm calling upon you today to do that as we reach this incredible center point in our series on the Gospel of Mark. And so would you turn in your Bibles now to Gospel of Mark chapter 8. As we seek to love the Lord with our God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind, let's some Spend some time in the Word and let's be attentive to the voice of God through and in this scripture. Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 27. Let's stand together to hear God's Word. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples, and he said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. May God bless his word. Thank you. You may be seated. So we come today to the center of the Gospel of Mark, the last part of chapter 8 of 16 chapters. But more importantly, we come to a critical turning point in the Gospel of Mark and the story of Christ as told by Mark. The big question that Mark is answering for his readers now comes into focus as the primary theme of the dialogue. We no longer hear what everyone else thinks about Jesus. Now we hear 
what his disciples, his closest associates, his followers think of Jesus. We, found, we find out today if, if their spiritual ears and eyes are being opened or whether or not they still remain deaf and blind to his glory. And just as in the case of the blind man at Bethsaida in chapter 8, verse 22 that we read of a couple, couple weeks ago, we see in the text today that the disciples had experienced only partial healing, partial sight. Same sort of scenario. That is, that just as that blind man, after Jesus first touched him, could only see a blurry vision of men walking like trees, so also at this stage of the disciples' discipleship, they only see a blurry vision of who Jesus is as the Christ. They still do not see him fully and know him fully as he is wanting to be known. And the question that the reader asks as we read through Mark is, what is it going to take for them to get it? What is it going to take for them to understand who Jesus is and live accordingly? And by the time we come to the end of the message today, perhaps it will be the question that you are left with about yourself. When, what is it going to take for, for me to get it, to understand who Jesus really is, and for me to live my life according to who he is. And so that's where we're driving toward. As we begin this morning, I want you to use all the powers of observation and, and, uh, and in attentiveness, and I'd like to just draw your attention to a few uh, things that are in this text that are very important. First of all, I want you to see that Mark has intentionally slowed his pace down to literally a walking pace. If you can imagine that everything now is in slow motion, that is what happens starting in chapter 8, verse 27. We get indication of that by a little phrase that Jesus uses, or that Mark uses, called, on the way. It says in verse 27, on the way. It's very important that we get this. He is slowing the pace down. Up until now, Jesus has been involved in a very active ministry. The last few chapters, we've been seeing Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee like he owned the, the boat company. I mean, he was just going all over the place. And, and now we're seeing him slowing down. He's not taking the boat. He is walking. He is walking. And the word on the way is indicative of that. It's found here. It's also found in chapter 9, verse uh, Verse 33, they came to Capernaum. When he's, he's in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way, it says. They kept quiet because on the way, they'd been arguing about which is the greatest. Chapter 10 as well. In verse uh, 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him. Later on in verse 32, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and on and on, all the way through. It keeps on reminding us Jesus is traveling. When Jesus wants to have some critical time of teaching with his disciples, he slows the ministry down. He slows the pace down, and he begins to teach them the most critical lesson of all their discipleship. If Jesus wants to get our attention, if Jesus wants to teach us an important lesson. He has his ways of slowing us down to a walking pace. There was a book written many years ago called The Three Mile an Hour God. That's what we walk at. 
three miles an hour. God meets you at a walking pace because he's got something that he wants to say to you. So this is very clear here. Jesus is slowing the pace down. He's got something important to teach his disciples. The change in pace is also indicated by the word immediately. Up until chapter 8, verse 26, the word immediately is used 32 times by Mark. That's why Mark is known as the action adventure gospel because it's immediately, immediately, immediately. He's just driving through telling the story of Jesus. Between chapters 8 and 10, the word is used only four times and three of them are with regards to one man being healed. So there's no more immediately stuff. This is slow it down, let's talk. And so... Uh, two very important observations about the change in pace. Another observation that I want you to see is where Jesus takes them, according to verse 27. It says that they go to the region, the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And this was on the border between the Holy Land and the Gentile territory, and it was known as absolute pagan territory. This was pagan territory. In fact, it was named in honor of the Roman emperor Caesar, thus Caesarea, Philippi, and Philip, the son of Herod, the the, the Tetrarch. And so it is named in honor. There is a temple and a cave there that is a place of worship for Caesar worship in Caesarea Philippi. There is also a Greek temple there to to the Greek god of nature called Pan, and so there's, there's temples there. It won't be long after the time of Jesus when another temple is built to the honor and worship of Zeus, the Greek god. You see, Jesus takes his disciples to ask them the supreme question. Jesus takes them to the pagan lands where there are pagan shrines and temples and pagan politics and peoples. Jesus takes them there to ask them the supreme question. Who do you say that I am? I want to slow down here a bit and I want us to jump out of the text and go to a few lessons that we might infer in our day and age for us today. And the first lesson I want you to see is that there is a common answer to the question, who do people say that I am? Jesus' disciples responded more than once. Chapter 6, verse 14 says the same answer, that Jesus was popularly viewed by the masses as a reincarnation of John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets. And I submit to you today that, that similarly... There is a common view of Jesus in our culture. In fact, in many cultures around the world, even that that have no claim to Christianity. And Jesus is viewed positively in this world. You need to get that. Jesus is viewed positively. By and large, the people that you will talk to that are somehow resistant and antagonistic are antagonistic against Christianity, against religion, against the church. But Jesus, they're okay with. And that's important we see. We understand that. Because in the end, it won't matter what they think of religion and Christianity and the church. But it will matter how they answer the question, who do you say Jesus is? 
A second lesson inferred from this in the location in verse 27, that Jesus takes the 12 to this area of pagan idolatry, false gods, shrines, temples. In similar manner, Jesus asks us, his followers, to decide who he is and how we should live in light of him in the context of a pagan society that does not know him or follow him. That's Canada. He asks us to live out a life answer to the supreme question in the context of a lost and godless world that does not understand Jesus. We must remember in the days that we are living now in, in Manitoba even, that the gospel of Jesus Christ has seen such days many times before and in many cultures before. And it has thrived. It has thrived. Not because of a Christian society. Not because of Christian laws and Christian leaders. But because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in God's people. What the church needs to do today if there's a do on our list, is answer the question, who do you say that I am? And then instead of letting our answer to that be in our statements of faith and our declarations and on our billboards and in our literature, let it be written on our lives. Those are the people that deny themselves and take up the cross and follow that Jesus. Let it be written on our lives, our answer to this question, who do you say that I am? Let our lives declare our faith. Let our lives tell the story of a loving, dying, persecuted, and risen Savior. You see, the supreme answer to the supreme question, the supreme answer to the supreme question upon which all of our discipleship rests, did you hear me? On which all of our discipleship rests is to be seen in us denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus. Who do you say Jesus is, and how will you live in light of him? Would you pray with me? Oh God, There is so much at stake here. There is so much at stake and we feel so unworthy. So unworthy to claim the name. So unworthy to follow in your footsteps. Oh Lord Jesus, make your way plain. Open our eyes today that we might understand more seriously what it means to be your disciples. We pray in your name. Amen. If you have your insert from your bulletin, that little green piece of paper, you'll open and you'll see that our first point this morning under the sermon notes is the question, what does it cost to be Christ, the Messiah? Remember that the name Christ, Christos in Greek, is simply the word for Messiah, which means the anointed one. What did it cost Jesus to be this Messiah Christ? 
You'll notice in verse 31 that after Peter's bold confession, which is more amplified in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 16, verse 16, Now art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus begins to teach them some important lessons of who the Messiah is. And it might seem strange for us to read that, that he begins to teach them. Hasn't he been teaching them all along? Well, actually, no, he hasn't been teaching them who the Messiah is yet. And so here he is, he begins to teach them, and Mark uses this word because this is what the whole focus of the lesson is now. And that's why Jesus says in verse 30, incidentally, that they're not to tell anybody about him because they don't know him yet. They really don't get it. They're so misinformed about the Messiah that Jesus does not want them going out and blabbering all about it and raising all kind of political stuff against him before his time. And so in that, they'd been taught that the Messiah would come. He'd be a political leader, a military kind of leader. He would set up God's supremacy over the Romans. He would give favor to the people of Israel. Their idea of a Messiah had nothing to do with self-denial. Their idea of a Messiah had nothing to do with a cross. And so Jesus says, don't don't go out and talk about me yet. Jesus did not want them to share yet. And so he begins to teach them about his life mission in verse 31. And he uses beginning with the term the Son of Man. Now the Son of Man is a term that was made popular in the Old Testament by the prophet Ezekiel. The term is used 186 times in all of the Bible. Over half of them are in Ezekiel, and almost the full other half are in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's Jesus talking about himself as the Son of Man. Ezekiel prophesying about the Messiah. Jesus talking about himself as the Son of Man. There's only 10 other references of those 186 that are outside of Ezekiel and the four Gospels. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of Man. Now what must happen to the Son of Man? Verse 31. Well, the Messiah must suffer many things, it says. And he must be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed. And then he'll rise three days later. That's what must happen to the Messiah. That's what Jesus must do to be the Messiah. And this was absolutely foreign to the disciples. And so in verse 32, we see that Jesus is confronted by Peter. Peter, in his brazen, misinformed way, takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. He rebukes him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says that the cross is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the, Gen- or to the Jews. Well, guess, what? guess who is the first to stumble over the cross? Peter. Peter's the first. Peter's the first to stumble over the message of the cross. He takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. In Matthew's account, he has the words, Never! Jesus, this shall never happen to you. He can't get it. Is there someone here like that, perhaps, that that, uh, only partially gets Jesus? 
You see, Peter at this point is that blind man who's had his eyes opened only enough to see a blurry vision, but he doesn't get it yet. Is there someone here like that, that you know Jesus is significant in all of human history, but you still only have your eyes open partially? Can you say to the Lord Jesus today, can you say to God, God, open my eyes that I might see Jesus for who he is and that I might respond? Now, what's going on here is playing around a very significant word, and the word is rebuke. The word rebuke is used nine times in the Gospel of Mark. Three of them are in our text. The first one is found in verse 30, where it says that Jesus warned them. Actually, the word is rebuke. Jesus rebuked them not to tell anybody about him. And then the second one is used when Peter rebukes Jesus... And the third one is used when it turns on Peter and Jesus rebukes Peter. Now the thing that's interesting about this word rebuke is that it is generally found in the scriptures when there is either a power encounter happening or a truth encounter happening. We see this word rebuke happen when Jesus, for example, rebukes an evil spirit. It comes out of somebody and the person is is able to go healed and cleansed. We see it happening when uh, Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. There's a power encounter going on. Who's supreme here? Who's the Lord of the wind and the waves? Jesus says, I am, and be still. You see, there's a power encounter. Sometimes that's when the word rebuke is. But sometimes it's because there is a truth encounter. Now, I won't argue with you if you want to tell me that every power encounter is a truth encounter. I will agree with you. But sometimes it's very clearly the truth that is at stake. Here in this text, we see a truth encounter. It's imperative that these 12 men understand who the Messiah is and who the Messiah is not. And so Jesus rebukes Peter. You are misinformed. I will go to the cross and die. I will be there for three days. I will rise from the dead. This is my calling and my mission in life. It happens again in a couple chapters. We're going to see when uh, people are bringing children to Jesus. And the disciples rebuke them. And then Jesus rebukes the disciples. Why? There's a truth encounter going on. Is the kingdom of God for children? Absolutely it is. Jesus wants people to understand that. And so what I want you to see is that many times when these encounters are happening, the word rebuke is used, the devil's not far away. The devil's not far away. And in this text, we see that when Jesus rebukes Peter, he says, Get thee behind me, Satan. For you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And the word mind here is the same word that is used in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, when it says, let this mind, this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to hang on to, but instead he came down, he made himself nothing, he found an appearance as a man and a servant, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let that be in you. Peter, you don't have in mind, you don't have the attitude that's in God, you have the attitude that comes from man. And 
And so there's a, an encounter here where Jesus rebukes Peter. It's, it's a fascinating text in Matthew chapter 16. We read that after Peter's bold confession, you know how Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. And then the very next scenario is Jesus saying to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. Isn't that incredible? I, I find that so incredible. It's almost scary. Can, can it be that, that a man of God, a woman of God, can be used in one moment to bless God, to speak of divine revelation from God, to build somebody up, and in the very next breath be used by Satan to tear someone down, to speak a cursing, to speak in behalf of the name of the devil instead? That's why James says everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. And so here we see this interaction between Jesus and Peter. Let's move on to the second point in this text and, and the second point in my sermon. The first thing then is what does it cost Jesus to be the Messiah? It cost him his life. He emptied himself and became obedient even to death on a cross. Now, secondly, what does it cost to be a follower of the Christ? Now, that might seem like strange language to you, even heretical. But it is precisely what Jesus is talking about in verses 34 to 38 of Mark chapter 8. When he calls the wider crowd of his followers to him, he begins by saying, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, carry his cross, and follow me. You know, it's, it's, these words are so familiar to us if you've grown up in the church that you almost let them slide off of you without thinking of the meaning. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The thing that's interesting about this, in many translations not coming clear, is that the word at the beginning of the sentence and the word at the end of the sentence are the same word. Okay? So you could translate this word, and, and the word means, by the way, when we use the word follow in this Greek text here, the word follow can mean to follow in the sense that you're way over there, up there and I'm following you. But sometimes the scriptures distinguish that. They say follow at a distance, like Peter when he's going to the courtyard where Jesus was being tried. But the word can mean to go with or to come with. Okay? In other words, it might, maybe I'm splitting hairs here, but it, it might, it helps me to think of it this way, that Jesus did not take up his cross, die, forgive my sins, and then say, by the way, Terry, pick up your own cross and follow me. And he's way out front, and I'm trying my hardest to be a disciple. No, I don't see that. I see Jesus saying, come with me. Follow me. Come with me. Go with me. That's why in another text, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus uses a different wooden implement of the yoke. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Can you have someone way out front if you're going to share a yoke? No way. If you're going to share a yoke with someone then you have to be side by side. When Jesus says, follow me, he says, come with me. 
I'll bear your burden. I'll help you with your cross. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Yours isn't. Come with me. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So let's translate verse 34 a little differently. It could be saying, Jesus could be saying, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and come after me. That's one way. Or he could be saying, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Or he could be saying, if anyone would go with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and go with me. The point is that the beginning of the sentence and the end of the sentence are the same word. And the main thing is that Jesus is saying, if you are declaring yourself to be a follower of Christ, if you have set out on the path to be following Jesus, you must deny yourself and you must take up your cross, even as Jesus denied himself and took his cross. You see, it was not enough for the disciples to come to the aha moment in chapter 8. I know who you are now. You're the Messiah. It wasn't enough for them to know what title to call Jesus. It's not enough for us to know what to call Jesus. He said there's a divine imperative. You must take up, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Now this whole thing of self-denial can be very misconstrued, can't it? It can be very, very misunderstood with forms of asceticism, Punish the body so that the spirit can be purified is the way it often is thought of. Self-denial, self-discipline, self-punishment. As if somehow that's going to help us become more spiritual. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He is not talking about denying yourself of things. He is talking about denying self. That's different, isn't it? Self-denial then cannot be reduced to a certain time of the year like Lent when we deny ourselves certain things so that we're somehow ready for Easter. Is that not maybe a self-improvement project instead of a grace work? I'm not saying it's wrong to do that, but it has to be understood. It can be valuable if it's understood properly. You see, denying self has more to do with the actual crucifixion that follows on the cross. The denying yourself road always leads to the cross of crucifying self, the big I, the big me, that thing that is going to be str you're struggling with and, and, and it's going to be with you as long as you're in this body, trying to enslave you at every turn to say yes to, to the flesh and, and say no to God. You see, it's not, if I could use this picture, it's not denying yourself and taking up your cross. It is not about having a tree and lopping off the branches. Ooh, that sin is really scary. I lop that sin off and I try to not let it grow back. And oh, that sin is ugly. I want people to see that. And I lop that sin off and I don't want people... No, denying yourself is taking an axe to the root of the tree of self. And saying, from now on, I live by faith. Jesus is my life. I can't live the fruitful, righteous Christian life. Jesus in me can live that life. And so I deny myself. I bring myself to the cross. 
and I say, Jesus, from now on, it's all about you. One author puts it this way. Every day we must open ourselves up to God's initiatives and control. Self-denial takes shape in many ways. For the proud, it means renouncing the desire for status and honor. For the greedy, it means renouncing an appetite for wealth. The complacent will have to renounce their love of ease. The faint-hearted will have to abandon the craving for security. And on it goes. Generally, each one of us knows best what hinders us from giving our lives over to God and living the crucified life. So when we come to Jesus, there is this renouncing. You know, it's one of the most scary things about this generation that we live in and the evangelism that has taken place that has said just put your faith in Jesus and it has skipped over the renouncing repentance part it skipped over that it's kind of I like I like Easter but I don't like Good Friday kind of attitude and so we do that too often and, and can you imagine that a bride and groom come to this church and the bride and the groom meet together at the front of the church and they, and they turn to one another and they're about to give their vows and everybody in the room knows that they've not renounced everybody else. Can you, can you imagine? Does anybody have a reason why? They, well, yeah, everybody stands up. Does it not, is it not implicit in the marriage covenant? Is it not implicit that we say, and forsaking all others, I give myself fully to you? Should we do any less with Jesus? Is that not what he asks of us? To deny self, to take up your cross, and to go with him. Go with him. Jesus uses the divine imperative. Friends, I'm sorry. This is it. We live in a world of choices. We go to a restaurant. We got hundreds of choices. We turn on our TV. We got hundreds of choices. We live in a world of choices and options. We want choices and options when we open the Bible. You know what? Jesus gives us two options. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself take up his cross and follow me. Here's the choice. If anyone doesn't want to come after me, forget the rest of the sentence. That's the choice. But the choice is not if anyone would come after me, you can skip the middle and then you can come after me. It's not there. It's a divine imperative. It's not a choice. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? David Lodge has written a novel called Therapy. And the main character uh, in the, in the uh, book has a therapist that he goes to. And he goes to the therapist and the therapist's getting him to write down two columns. On one column, he writes everything that is good about his life. And on the other column, he writes everything that is bad about his life. On the good column, he writes things like professionally successful, well-off, good health, stable marriage, kids successfully launched into adult life, nice house, great car, as many holidays as I want. 
And under the bad column of this, he writes to the therapist one thing, feeling unhappy most of the time. Now, for a moment, I want to take this and and twist it. I want you to imagine that that is not on the bad column, but on the good column. In other words, that the man actually wrote, feeling happy most of the time. The words of Jesus still apply. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, including his happiness? But in the end, he forfeits his soul for all of eternity. You know what? The most miserable men on this earth might be closer to kingdom than the most happy men on this earth or women. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? I'm going to ask the worship team to come. And I want you to think about something before we conclude with a song. I want you to think about your own funeral. Maybe some of you have given thought to that or not. Can you, can you imagine, have you ever thought about what might be shared at your own funeral? What might people say? What might you be remembered by? Will you be remembered as the smartest, the richest, the most generous, the most talented, the most liked, whatever? The fact is, very crude, crude fact, but this is the fact. The fact is that at some point after your funeral, you will not be remembered at all. That's what's coming for every one of us. Even the plaques and the stones and the monuments that might be put up somewhere in your honor are going to one day be dust. Even that. And you will not be remembered at all. It says in Psalm 103.15, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. In the end, friends, I want you to know this, that you need just one friend. You need just one person who will remember you forever, and it is Jesus. That's all that matters. What you think of him and how you relate to him matters more than anything else. You will have just one friend at the end. He better be your friend. And that's why you must give more attention to answering the question with your life, who do you say that I am?